0: Databytes are Data and Society speaker series designed to bridge our interdisciplinary research with broader public conversations about the societal implications of data and automation. Good afternoon, morning, evening, some time of the day. Thank you so much for joining us here today for the 10636th Databyte at Data and Society. This is the Metrics, Media and Race Databyte featuring Angel Christian and Joseph Torres. My name is Dana Boyd, I'm the founder and president of Data & Society. So I'm gonna be your host today, I'm supported by an amazing team of people, including uh, CJ, Rigo and Eli. They're hiding behind the scenes, but they're doing wonders to make this possible. For those of you who don't know us yet, Data & Society is an independent research institute that studies the social implications of data and automation. We produce original research, we convene multidisciplinary thinkers, and we really try to uh, challenge the power and purpose of technology in society. You can learn more about us through our website um, at datasociety.net. So now we're going to turn to the talk that we're here to uh, listen to. And I want to tell you a little bit about the speakers and why we came to have the talk, um, this conversation. So I relish books. You might be able to tell that from what's going on behind me. I regularly read books and get into the state where I imagine what would be like to have authors talk to one another, Um, seeing fascinating conversations between their arguments, seeing these synergies and disconnects. And so I keep having this moment where I want to bring authors together to actually have a conversation. So we're here with a book talk um, with a twist. Um, So we have two different books um, that we're highlighting today. Um, The first uh, is Angel's book. This is a brand new book, Metrics at Work. And the second, which is almost a decade old, is Joseph's book, um, which he wrote in collaboration with uh, Juan Gonzalez, News for All the People. Um, Now, each of them provides different uh, angles to what our conversation is about today. So. If you think about it, News for All the People documents the long history of journalism relationship with race and class conflict, whereas Metrics at Work is uh, rooted in an ethnographic account of the present, looking at contemporary journalists as they grapple with statistical accounting. Taken together, these books reveal a brutal tension. Journalism is simultaneously holding power to account in a democracy and rooted in and helping extending the logics of capitalism, including the culture of white supremacy. Each of these books sheds light on this duality from different angles with different methods and different emphases. And so part of it today is to bring these two together and see how they can speak to one another. So I'm gonna turn it over to Angel uh, in a moment um, who will provide insights to her book before um, Joseph talks through what he he learned. Um, And then we'll connect the dots from some audience questions. But before I do, I wanna highlight an important thing about a book talk. I know that these physical artifacts are really antiquated in a digital world, but they're really important. And part of a book talk, whether you like it or not, is to encourage you to buy the book. We'll take the digital copy, we'll take the physical copy, whatever makes you happy, but just know that there's a sales pitch going on here too. There's also a third thing that actually is going to be highlighted today and will be put into the chat as well, which is a new report that Joseph and his team have just put out today. This is brand new, um, called Media 2070, which is the case for media reparations. So all of these will be interwoven um, today
1: in a lot of our uh, conversations. And now I'm gonna turn it over to Angel. Thank you so much, Dana, for this introduction and for kind of putting together this discussion, which also makes me so excited to, like, think about media metrics and race together. Um, Okay, so first, thank you so much. And this is so exciting uh, in part because I started thinking about this book while I was a fellow at Data and Society, uh, I think five years ago already. Um, So I'm just, you know, it makes perfect sense to kind of um, come back here. Um, so, um in order to address the kind of metrics, media and race kind of conundrum, um the so way I'm going to proceed in the in, in the in the next ten minutes is first give an overview of the book and then tease out some of the ramifications that this ethnographic study of metrics and how they impact news production. How that kind of impacts uh, the question of how the media is reproducing and reinforcing a structure and culture of white supremacy. So let me start a tiny bit uh, by kind of talking about the book and uh, where it comes from and kind of what are the main questions that drives me uh, in this study. So it's not a surprise. Uh, we are surrounded by metrics, right? Likes, shares, clicks, um, most emails, um, trending, buzzing, going viral. All of that stuff is part of our digital background. We see it over and over again when we look at our screens. And we see these metrics so often that really we kind of stop paying attention to what they mean. Or when we pay attention, we're like, well, that's big tech tracking us. Or that's vanity metrics telling us how popular we are and, oh, how superficial. In the book, I try to change how we think about these metrics and about the cultural and political work that they do. Uh, And I do that by looking at um, news production. So now journalism, uh, when we think about it, we tend to have this kind of like very white, very male, very print-based kind of representations uh, with, you know, the classical journalist uh, with his hat and his cigarette and his typewriter and these big headlines. But more importantly, I think, we tend to think about um, the audience as a kind of mass audience that doesn't talk back, right? An audience that receives the news uh, without kind of um, communicating its desires, its needs, uh, and its political engagement to the producers of information. Now, of course, um, journalism is not like that um, today. And it's not like that in part because it moved online. And as it moved online, it started relying on very fine-grained data about what users are doing. Um, This data is really important, both economically, because that's advertising revenue, that's monetization, uh, and that's how um, newsrooms make a profit, that's how they're commercially viable or kind of viable enterprises, but it's also a way in which journalists know now what their readers want. And they know that typically um, through these kinds of software programs, which I called um, web analytics software programs, this is just one of them, there are uh, many, but basically kind of programs that provide real-time data about what readers are doing at any given point on a website, where they come from, where they're located, what they're tweeting about, and also rankings of the most popular articles kind of moving in real time. So now, the question is, okay, so journalists have access to all this data, okay, Um, they're like platforms, they get kind of take advantage of all these kind of uh, affordances of digital media, what does that mean for news production? Until now, the way in which it's been mostly framed is like, well, clickbait. It leads to clickbait. That's what it is. Trashy headlines, deceptive headlines, bad content kind of um, spiraling down uh, to the bottom of news production. Um, that's kind of the way it's been mostly framed um, until now. And so I came to this question as a cultural sociologist being like, huh, interesting. So what does that look like? And how do journalists make sense of what they're doing? Do they think they're doing clickbait? Or do they think that they're doing something different? And how does that work out? Um, so I did a study, an ethnographic study, of web newsrooms in two countries with very different journalistic traditions, the United States and France. To go very quickly, and I won't talk too much about this today, but I'm happy to um, answer questions if there are any The US media landscape, as Joe shows so well in his book, um, is a very commercialized media landscape where market and financial pressures have been essential in shaping news production for two centuries. In France, the situation is a bit different, in part because journalists see themselves as intellectuals in charge of guiding public opinion. Long story short, I ended up focusing on two news websites, one in Paris and one in New York, and I anonymized uh, both of them. in the book. So I spent a ton of time with journalists, interviewed them, had lunch with them, followed them, kind of tried to understand what they were doing when they were writing articles. Based on that, what did I find? Well, the main kind of set of findings that I want to talk about today is um, both the kind of like ways in which um, the presence of audience metrics kind of pushed all of the newsrooms towards standardized content, but also how they reproduce difference. So let me talk briefly about that. First, convergence. Something that I found very strongly in all of the newsrooms where I I spent time is this kind of very kind of depressing story of like utopian beginnings and then a kind of move towards what what, I call the chase for clicks. So utopian beginnings, and that's something that we should not forget. All of the newspapers, all of the newsrooms, all of the journalists I talked to really believed in using... Uh, digital media, and metrics to give voice to more diverse communities of readers and writers. They wanted to change journalism, and they wanted to change journalism in part because they thought that mainstream media was reproducing existing structures of power and white supremacy. That's what they were hoping to do in many cases, right? Um, Sometimes not as explicitly, but trying to change the flow of information to a more distributed kind of public sphere. Starting in 2010, 2011, however, the situation changed, and it changed because social media platforms entered the pictures. And as social media platforms enter the pictures, mostly Facebook, to some extent YouTube and Twitter, um, news websites enter the chase for clicks. They had to publish more, they had to publish faster, they had to make a profit, they had to monetize their audience. And so they turn to sensationalism and inflammatory content, trying to produce like shock kind of hits that would go viral and would kind of tease out the readers, just like make them click, right? And so what I found in the newsrooms that I studied, both in New York and in Paris, is this constant tension between what I call editorial and click-based evaluation, where journalists were like, oh, um, you know, am I a good journalist because I published something important, even if no one clicked? Or oh, am I a good journalist because it went viral even though this is um, a listicle right? that doesn't do much to, in fact, change the way in which readers think about the topic? So very strong standardization process around this kind of click-based content. But that's not all there is. What I also found was that depending on the newsroom and depending on the kind of governance structures that these organizations have in place, um, the so way in which metrics are used and the way in which um, they're kind of uh, put to use for news production is changing. And in the book, I contrast what I call bureaucratic versus disciplinary use of metrics to go very fast. In one case, you have a strong division of labor between people who do metrics and do viral stuff and people who do important articles or what they think are important articles versus disciplinary uses of metrics, which is a kind of Foucauldian, like everybody does a bit of everything and stresses out about everything. Right. Um, and so. I think here that uh, one of the interesting findings, especially thinking about race and social justice more generally, um, is that you know these different structures had really paradoxical repercussions on the amplification of social, racial, and gendered inequalities. In the sense that, for example, in the bureaucratic model, where there was a strong division of labor, well, on the one hand, it did protect, shall we say, investigative news content more, but it also created this very strong gendered, racial, and economic hierarchies within newsrooms where basically all the people of color, all the journalists of color, the white, the, the female journalists, and the young journalists were only doing click-based content, right? And the white senior journalists would only be doing investigative content. So kind of complicated dynamics here. So now, um, one thing that I want to mention, because I think that it bears like really important repercussions on the question of, of race and racial justice, is um, the kind of complex role of metrics, which is something that emerges very strongly in my book. Um, metrics don't only mean one thing. They really mean many things, but in particular, they mean both market pressures and what I call algorithmic publics online publics that are mediated and represented through algorithmic procedures, usually meeting through social media platforms. Why does this matter? Well, because when you're thinking about how metrics and race interact, you have to take into account these two aspects of metrics. It's more complicated than um, the first aspect, which is clicks as commerce, right? Which is like, oh, and that would be kind of a caricatural version. You know, journalism used to be great. Uh, it used to be so professionalized. Oh, by the way, it was completely white, completely made, but let's not even talk about that. Uh, and then all newsrooms kind of went down the drain of uh, the chase for clicks, and they started covering uh, the far right, uh, covering white supremacy, doing cheap articles um, that really kind of serve as kind of inflammatory kind of content that spreads social and racial divisions. Um, that's part of the story, but that's not the whole story. Another aspect of the story is that clicks can also serve, and metrics, audience metrics, and this kind of data can also serve as, shall we say, problematic but nonetheless important forms of democratic feedback. And that's something that I've seen a lot in the newsrooms that I, that I saw, where, you know, in order to kind of fight back against problematic media norms, for example, oh, let's not talk about race, it's kind of depressing, and no one likes that. No one wants to talk about that. Um, Well, journalists would, in fact, look at metrics and be like, hey, yo, did you see how many people read that article? Did you see how many times it was shared on Twitter? There is a community for this and we need to cover, you need to tend to the cares and the desires of that community. So it's complicated, I guess, is a way of of concluding. And here, just as as a last word, I think that like. When we think about journalism and social and racial change and social and racial justice, we need to to take into account this kind of complicated dialectical dynamic where, on the one hand, journalists are professional communicators. They're the ones who shape how we think about the world. On the other hand, journalists are also professional communicators that make a living Based on doing that. And so, as such, they most of the time try to cater to the largest audiences, right? And that's especially the case for mainstream media. Um, and so, kind of thinking about that, you can think that like journalists are always going to be perhaps a tiny bit changing the kind of dominant frameworks, right? The kind of supremacist frameworks in how we think about racial questions, but they're not going to be that far out unless, unless they're part of a more diverse media ecosystem. And unless we change the kinds of metrics, the kinds of incentives, the kinds of recruitment that we have um, in how we create a very diverse and vibrant media ecosystem. And perhaps um, I'll stop here. I have ideas about um, what could be done to go in that direction. But um, Joe also has amazing plans and amazing ideas for that. So um, I'll stop here.
0: Thank you, Angel. And I am going to turn it over to Joseph now to share more about his book. Sure. Thank you, Dana, for
2: having me in Data Society. And um, I'll just start from the president and work backwards. As Dana mentioned, we put out a report today. I, I work for a group called Free Press as well. It's a it's a media and telecom advocacy organization, right? And so we fight for media and telecom policies that serve a public good. And I'm very proud that within the work I've been doing at Free Press, I've been working with the Black Caucus within Free Press to put out this essay today. It's called uh, Media 2070. And is a trying to reimagine a new media system where reparations is possible for the historical harms media companies and media policies has caused the black community. You know, um, um, there's a reckoning happening in newsrooms across the country as we speak, right? It's, it's, It's historical reckoning happening. And at the same time, uh, last year, you know, and over the past year, there has been much more attention brought to the issue of reparations. We had a congressional hearing on it. Uh, You know, we had Nicole Hannah-Jones put out a a column on it. It just is getting more attention. People, presidential candidates are being forced to take positions on it. And so for us at Free Press and, you know, for me personally, like I, I personally believe that we're living in a time where the question of whether a multiracial democracy can be fully realized. Democracy has not been fully realized. Whether a multiracial democracy can be fully realized, I think that is what's happening in the world today. And it is it's a continuous subject we have to, to deal with as our nation becomes a, people of color would make up the majority of the population. So what is the media's role in unjust society? And from the book that, you know, I worked with Juan we wrote that book in order to try to organize and, and to help journalists better understand what's happening in society, particularly when it comes to media policies. Because when we started that book, there was all kind of consolidation happening and how the federal government plays a role in structural racism. And the reason black and brown people don't own TV stations or radio stations, while well, we, don't, we don't control the creation and distribution of our own narratives, Um, And that's and it's about power at the end of the day. It's about power. The media system is no different than any other system that exists in our society, whether it's criminal justice system, education, you can name it. The system wasn't created to help black folks. The system wasn't created to help people of color. That's the media institution as well. So we documented a book and we documented the essay. This history should be more widely known, and it still isn't. The first newspapers that were printed in this country, in Boston Newsletter, first continuous newspaper, uh, talk about Black folks being addicted to stealing a line. But also the publisher of the paper was also the printer of the paper. And in colonial times, often the printer of the paper. And when he placed slave ads in newspapers for the sale of enslaved Black folks, the printer was the broker between the buyer and the seller. And so, this is the history of our own early colonial newspapers. There's evidence to suggest that Benjamin Franklin was a broker between the owner and the seller of, of slaves, right? So, you have this DNA from the upholding a white racial hierarchy. This is the role that the mass media has played. So, dominant white media companies, so as they're part of the power structure, their job with uh, upholding uh, white supremacist policies in order to uphold a white racial hierarchy. Then you have newspapers in the 1800s supporting, of course, slavery, the annexation of the Southwest, the takeover of indigenous lands. You've seen over the past decade or two decades, several newspapers who have apologized for their role in the harm they caused Black folks, right? Uh, You just had the LA Times apologize for its role in harming the Black community, the Latinx community. But over the past decade, you've had like the Valley News and Observer apologizing for its role in 1898 coup of uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, we had a fusion government made up of Black leaders that the newspaper, the volumes News Observer*, observant, Josephus Daniels, editor and publisher, worked with the Democratic uh, state chairman, have a plan to overthrow the government because, uh, as the paper said, the paper was like, we are the militant voice of white supremacy, right? And it was a white supremacist coup that included militia, that included uh, writers, papers that were lined with the Democratic Party. And uh, you had uh, during World War I. After World War I, the Justice Department investigate the Black press because they thought they were a threat to challenging you know, racial injustice in the happening in our society. Um, and then you had, like, you know, in the 60s where uh, the white citizens councils had a public affairs program that it distributed to stations across the country. How many stations carried it? We don't exactly know, but the members of Congress actually helped them to get uh, the privileges to record their show in Congress, in the Congress recording studios. So the point is, is that, our media institutions. And then if you look at even at like CNN or you, you look at um, Les Munvez, you know the famous quote, CBS may be bad for America, but great CBS. What is he really saying? Right? He's really saying this racist, misogynist person, it may be bad for all y'all, but it's, it's good for us. And who is us, right? Us is like white-dominant companies, right? And it's like racism is profitable, right? Racism. It also has, uh, again, to ensure a white racial hierarchy exists. And that white, r- r- white racial hierarchy exists, the, the media companies uh, play in the coverage and the way it covers communities of color, ensures that other policies are passed that harm people of color, right? Because if you are dehumanized, right, uh, you, you can pass any kind of policy against the Black community and communities of color. So with media reparations, what we're trying to do is. Uh, is to collect the full, have the full story, right? Of like, what is the historical harms? Because a lot of people actually keepers of the stories. They actually know the harm that happened in their communities, but it's not widely known in their community. And it's definitely not known nationally. It, as you see these pa- papers and news, news institutions need to reckon with their own history of racism. The LA Times wrote the first 80 years of its existence. It was a paper of white supremacy, right? with our project, what we want to do is to uh, work in coalition with media makers, activists, uh, anyone who's the keeper of the story, to to tell the story of the harm of anti-Black racism in the media to the Black community, and to deal with the, the policies. I mean, we have a policy now, like as of 2017, of all the commercial radio, of television stations, full power commercial radio stations, television stations in the country, there were just 12 Black owners, right? So that's like less than 1% of all full-power television stations are owned by, by Black folks as of 2017. So I'll end with this. How can we envision a world where black folks create and control the distribution of their own narratives without any gatekeepers? How can we have online platforms that are emancipatory as, uh, as opposed to platforms based on surveillance to continue to give voice to, to white supremacy? So the point, the last point I'm gonna make, regardless of each platform, whenever technology comes along that creates new media systems and as new media systems create, it continues to replicate what has happened in society. And what's happening in society is capitalism and racism continue to intertwine uh, to continue to do harm to black folks. And so um, I'll stop there. I can continue to go, but I'll stop there then.
0: Thanks, Joe. Um, So just a reminder to everybody, there is the Q&A as you put some questions, but I'm going to take moderator's privilege and begin us because I think that just left off in a perfect place um, for us to pick up and talk about. So in News for All the People, um, Juan and Joe describe how the telegraph came into power. Um, and it's this reminder that these, the questions of the relationship between technology um, and journalism is age-old. This is not a news story. In fact, part of what's so fascinating about the present is how it's a continuation of a much longer story. And one of the quotes from the book is says, the new technology's instant speed and its monopoly pricing structure demanded shorter and simpler news items, actions over reflection, screaming headlines over news analysis. It's funny to think that that is actually a reference to the telegraph. Um, because arguably you could say this quote for nearly every form of technology. Um, And Angel, in in Metrics at Work, you show these parallel processes. You show how the race for clicks, the need for amplification on platform. And so with each of these new technologies, we see the news uh, industry respond. Um, And what's notable to me about a lot of the responses is that they, they justify the need to revert to some version of a, of a faster, um, a quicker, a less thought through version. So they undermine their own ideals in that process justified by economic considerations or the need to actually hold up. So how do we think about the consistently bad decisions made by the news industry that are consistently replied to and justified through each technology? How can we look at the history and the present and say, hey, what's going on here? Why do we keep reverting um, to these bad decisions justified by new technologies? Maybe Anjal, I'll throw out that to you first.
1: Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because okay, I'm going to take a slightly different angle, but because I think it's complementary, right? I mean, I think that, like, for example, um, in Joe's book and um, Juan's book, like, basically, one of the things that he finds, they find, is that with the telegraph, uh, many new voices also came to the fore, right? That like it was each new medium, with each new technology, you get first a kind of like kind of organizational kind of, oh, yeah, let's be faster. Let's publish faster, shorter, uh, more aggressive. Let's just like, you know, put oil on the fire again and again and again, because we can do it. Um, but you also have these kind of new spaces for communities that want to speak up. Right and like what I find fascinating is like looking at you know first the print medium and the telegraph, so radio, television, cable TV, now the internet. Like is how you know not only so you get several stages. You get the like oh let's go faster, let's do headlines, like let's you know kind of do the kind of clickbait version, right, or the telegraph bait version. Uh, you get the new voices that are just like hey actually for once we can get in and I see that in the chat. Um, Andre Brock is here. Uh, and I know that he did um, a byte and, and wrote this wonderful book about distributed blackness. And so you get also all of this effervescence and all of this resource that he talks about in using these technologies. Um, but as things consolidate, and that's something that shows up so clearly when you look at the history of media, um, you keep the kind of faster rhythms like publish more, publish faster, do more like kind of throwing oil on the fire. And the new voices, the more diverse voices get pushed away or like co-opted into existing structures, right? So it's not only reverting to bad stuff. It's also that all the good stuff that's happening, that's the stuff that gets eliminated or, you know, through the consolidation process, through the financialization process. And that's been happening like four or five times already, Um, you know, if not more. And so I just wonder, like, yeah, what can we learn from this, right? To like not keep repeating the same stuff over and over again. No, I think that's such a great point. And I think I'll turn it to Joe with this thought, which
0: is that one of the things that keeps coming up in your book with one is that as communities want to speak up, especially like your accounting of the indigenous press, your accounting of of Spanish um, Latinx press and Chinese press, uh, Chinese American press, there's a lot of conversations about how these groups try to make their voices heard. They try to build a press, um, but they're doing it as a side job. Or there's all of these ways in which they're stopped systematically. And so they keep struggling. And so these financialized logics that Angel points to, they don't hold water with communities who can either afford to pay for um, subscriptions to the newspapers, because we are talking about <laughs> the 1800s, or um, you know advertising, which of course is birthed around this time. So how do we grapple with what we're hearing um, in terms of, well, it's because of the finance, finances that justifies coming back to some uh, much more racist headlines, for example?
2: Well, I mean, you know, with the uh, the black press, uh, for example, in indigenous press, um, their presses were also destroyed. You know, for challenging white supremacy, Ada B. Wells, who was a great data, data journalist, right? Um, her press was her press was destroyed. She was a co-owner, right? After she she uh, she challenged the lynching of black folks, right? In in a paper, um, Alex Manley, uh, who was the publisher of the paper in Wilmington, North Carolina. I mean, they, they wanted to kill him. Yeah, they were like after him because he was challenging uh, the white supremacy movement in Wilmington, North Carolina. They actually kept track of him after he, he was forced to flee for his life. So there's a history of like, if you're a dissident press, if you're a, a, a black journalist and your voice is a dissident voice, you, you know, you're putting your life at risk. Um, after war, during World War one you know, when the, or after World War one when the Justice Department, they arrested A. Philip Randolph, who was the publisher of The Messenger, right? And Chandler Owen, who was the, they both created The Messenger, and they considered the most dangerous publication in, in the country, black publication in the country. Uh, they arrested them for, for a couple of days and they, they were let go. But they took away their mailing privileges, you know, because you, you have privileges to be able to postal privileges to deliver your paper at a discounted, you know, subsidized rate, right? And so they took away their, so they, they were constantly messing. Uh, abolitionist papers weren't delivered, you know? <laughs> I just say, like there's always this opportunity. As as Angela was saying, like, to me, one of the most, a place that needs to be studied more is the the early days of of, of radio. Anyone who is a U.S. citizen could get an amateur radio license, and we found examples, just examples. I know, like, just examples. I know there's so many more out there, like, examples of Black folks in in Baltimore creating a radio club, like, in 1916, 1917 right? Because they were like, we can actually broadcast and broadcast the the Boy Scouts, what they're doing. and But then the, the government has always interest to monopolize the media system, right? I feel like it's more it's more comfortable with, it, especially with radio, it's much, much more comfortable with it being a monopoly. In fact, Josephus Daniels, who I mentioned, who was the racist, white supremacist publisher who was involved in the, the coup that killed more than 60 Black folks in, in Wilmington in 1898, becomes... Uh, the secretary of the Navy during World War One, and he devises, what he, he, he plays an instrumental role in the creation of the Radio Corporation of America in order to have the government control radio. He wants the government just to control radio, but when that plans were rebuffed, he said, "We need, we need to create a monopoly where the U.S. Navy actually has a chair. The U.S. government has a chair on the board, and it creates, and it becomes from from this radio system that we're like." Uh, hobbyist and all that developing what radio potentially could be to government stepping in and, and allowing, instead of uh, regulating each new industry to allowing the voices of the many to speak, it consolidates the voices of the few. So RCA creates NBC, Red and Blue Network, and then NBC quickly puts Amos and Andy on the radio, and uh, Pittsburgh, the Black press, the Pittsburgh Courier, protested this racist programming. So the idea, here you have the potential to have many voices on, right? Uh, throughout history, there's always a critical moment, you have many voices, but the government comes in to regulate the industry to uh, to, to put in the hands of a few large corporations, right? And now, you, you know, so someone put a, a question about 230 in there, like the idea, like what's happening now with uh, uh, the idea of the future of the social media platforms and, and, and all that is like, you can see it, to me, the early days of radio is like, uh, and how the government treated uh, radios is, is kind of like something we should look back on, on what's happening now, you know?
0: Thank you for that. One of the things that I want to highlight is that the new report that Joe was involved in just put out, it opens with a great quote from Octob- Octavia Butler, which I just want to highlight here because I think we're actually seeing enacted in this conversation right now, which is to try to foretell the future without studying history is like trying to learn to read without bothering to learn the alphabet. And I think that's a really important thing to, to highlight at this moment because that history um, that we're discussing here is so critical to understand uh, what's going on right now. And that gets us to, you know, this question. I know that Joe sort of alluded to it with regard to the 230 question. We'll come back to 230 in more detail. But in the history of journalism, there were a ton of restrictions on who could speak, what could be shared, and what were the technologies that they could use um, to disseminate. You know, for all the conversations we're having right now on the postal system, the postal system refused to deliver countless newspapers if it, you know didn't abide by the interests of the, of the particular establishment, if you will. Um, and so we saw these restrictions on speech. right? And so we, this assumption that we've always had a First Amendment is a very naive um, assumption. It has not been true. It's been contested. It's been fought for who gets to have um, access to voice. And so, of course, in usually in, when we talk about it in terms of journalism, we come back to the Federal Communications Commission and the creation of the commission, because part of what is so important about the FCC was that it was not just a matter of who could speak, but who could get a license to broadcast. Um, And one of the things that Juan and and Joseph make a very good job of pointing out is that this is not actually just a free-for-all. It's not open to anybody. Um, And quoting from the book, um, federal regulators did not simply ignore the white supremacist views of some applicants. They refused to sanction um, racist broadcasts for violating public interest requirements of federal communication law. Um, And I think this is really important because we have this moment where we talk about where regulation comes in and how valuable can regulation be. Um, But we also of course have to account for the ways in which um, the idea that anybody can speak is used as a way to in many ways oppress other people from speaking. Um, And here we are in this moment right now where we have to ask questions about why it is that the New York Times thinks that um, it's a good idea to elevate the Nazi next door as an equal voice, or what it is when you know, um, Facebook um, decides what they should or should not restrict an amplification. So we're back to a conversation that is, in fact, age old um, and was previously understood in regulation, but regulations that were often not applied by. And so here we are at this moment of 230. Um, So for those who are not familiar with um, CDA 230, um, you're really lucky. Um, I'm I'm jealous of you. Um, I wish you to not have to actually know about this. But for those, so close your ears if you don't want to know. But the basic idea is that when um, early internet um, uh, developments were occurring, there was a regulation that was put out um, that was known as the Communications Decency Act. The main goal was to try to prevent the internet from being a place of terrible content. AKA pornography. Um, But there was a carve out, um, a particular section of it known as 230. um, And 230 um, basically allowed the um, platforms, the corporations, to not actually have to regulate speech. And the idea was that why should AT&T be responsible for when a drug deal is occurring across its wires? Um, Why should insert um, company from the 90s um, be responsible for what people put on their platform? Now. Most of CDA was struck down as, un- as unconstitutional, but 230 held. And so this is where we get to the question, which is that how do we think about C- the fights over CDA 230 right now? Um, what's being contested? How do we think of that? How do we think about what Facebook is doing and what um, you know, organizations like the New York Times are doing in light of the long history of constantly amplifying and returning to a lot of the white supremacist logics? And I don't know if one of you want to pick up on that first. Maybe I'll pick on on Angel because of some of the technology components of it. How should we be thinking about what's happening with um, ZDA 230 and the fights over Facebook and New York Times?
1: It's so complicated. I mean, so the way I think about it is that, you know, every technology comes with an aura of democratic participation, right? It's like this time, the floor is really open. Everybody can kind of come in and express their views. Except that in fact, of course, it's never the case, right? And as you showed, like the FCC and like before that, you always have incumbents. Um, and so the way I think about it is like they serve as like obligatory passage points, right? And now the obligatory passage points are the platforms. And so that's I mean for me what's fascinating is that yes there are regulations in place and certainly like 230 is what kind of makes this possible Uh, but platforms now are the ones kind of making decisions about what gets visible and what doesn't Um, and so I guess like another way of putting it is that I think that thinking about 230 and about the you know what kind of content can be allowed like and, and should be allowed on social media platforms or should be allowed this kind of visibility um online and this kind of traffic right this kind of like high metrics um relates back to and I'm sorry it's not like a super strict answer but like to the kind of both sidedism right to the like oh we need to like give voice equally to both sides even when like both sides are like a complete construction right It's like both sides of what? Like, what are you even talking about? And somehow that that gets wrapped up into kind of First Amendment and kind of professional norms of objectivity, right? And what I find fascinating is that you see this kind of like both sideism trope, both within news organizations. And that's like, oh, we are gonna give voice to a Nazi um, at the same time as we kind of give voice to a member of Black Lives Matter, right? And you're just like, that's not, Like that just doesn't compute. Like, it's just like, what are you even talking about, right? Um, And you see that on platforms, for example, like, you know, over the past couple of days, Twitter making an announcement that any kind of, Uh, What was it, any kind of tweet, um, you know, wishing the death or like illness of Trump would be uh, banned from the platform. And of course, every single person who's been victim of harassment on Twitter being like, yo, what does that even look like? So this whole kind of both sides, I think, uh, just plays out in really interesting ways to kind of justify um, the kind of production, diffusion, amplification of radicalized white supremacist content. Um, and I really think that it's, it's interesting for me, and that goes back to Ted Porter's work on numbers, how standards in the U.S. particularly, but, you know, different but similar things could be said about the French context, um, how standouts standards are used to, in fact, like, reproduce inequality, right, and reinforce inequality and racial inequality, in particular in the U.S. I just find it like this whole veil of objectivity thing just strikes me as, like, particularly interesting and, like, always happening. Anyway, so
2: that's a bit of a tangent, but it relates to your question. I'll just add on top of that, my colleagues, gorof Loria and uh, Carmen Scarado wrote a long essay on this, recently on this topic for free press to kind of like go through it. Um, and uh, uh, I haven't really marinated it with yet because I was finishing this essay, but I'm going to, but here's the thing with 230 that um, it concerns us. The, is, is obviously like the, here we have the, um, the FCC killing net neutrality, right? and and at the at the same time it said you know claiming that the platforms are neutral like that that ought to be it, it's already it, it, they're saying it's neutral like these companies' it's net neutrality exists it doesn't exist they can the companies can actually block your websites right now if they wanted to, but yet, at the same time this is about uh, this is about power and I'm so glad you said it the way you said it uh uh because there is uh the idea in, in the time where there's a racial reckoning happening in our country, and it's like no black lives matter e- equated with uh, with the Proud Boys, you know, like that's you know this this is what's happening. It's like the idea of like it's a fight over narrative, right? It's a fight over power, right? And whose story gets to be told? But at the same time, uh, we believe you know free press, I and mean, we we have projects on this. Like these guys, uh, you know, like a uh, white supremacist groups, and like it, it, Facebook is a private company, like and as, as and as private actors, we can go and challenge private companies. I mean, people of color, we have, we, we talk about it in, in the essay. Uh, have been challenging media institutions uh, to get rid of hate speech and white supremacy in their content, and so the idea that we we, we you know we we don't want David Duke on Twitter, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like we don't we we want to deplatform folks who are uh, basically calling for violence against uh, people of color, right? But but Facebook is a private company, right? They're a private company, and so the idea that we can challenge private companies. Uh, uh, to be held responsible for what they, what they, what they publish, you know, they may not say themselves as a published company, but they, and also the algorithms that they, there's nothing neutral about the algorithms that are allowing, um, uh, w- w- which, uh, groups they're pushing people to support, right, to, to, to join. A lot of people say that's a, a contradiction, but it's not a contradiction. We, like we, you know, we, we challenge, we challenge broadcast licenses for their failure, uh, to serve communities of color. We challenge racist programming, uh, and we're challenging racism on these platforms, but, uh, but we're we're concerned as an organization about 2:30, and and to me, it's like a um, is a power play. It's a power play to to allow racism and hatred to continue to be unchallenged online, and these companies not to stand back and not do anything. And it's concern that um, uh, especially with Facebook, because they stand back, they have stood down a lot during this administration, you know. And so the idea that these uh, these massive companies are, um, you know, like uh, the pressure put on by government did not, you know, and, and what, what does that mean going forward is, is, really, is really concerning and troubling because they've already um, have allowed too much to, uh, to proliferate on, on their platforms.
0: Thank you. You know, um, and thank you, Theo, for raising uh, the question of 2.30 in the Q&A. A Um, a friendly reminder, feel free to jump um, and and put in questions in the Q&A. And I'm now going to mix in a question um, that is brought to us by um, Alice um, in the the Q&A, who asks about um, examples of media companies and organizations who are using metrics to approach um, issues of race and inclusion in a more positive or decolonial way. And I think this is a moment, Joe, you referenced um, Ida B. Wells' um, phenomenal work. You referenced her as a, as a data journalist, which I just love. Um, and certainly I think that part of what's interesting is some of the work that Color of Change has been doing um, and trying to make it very clear um, the systematic ways of in, in which news media continues to hold up racist tropes. And um, Joe, can you you know talk us through some other examples that might be relevant for alice About where can we understand um data as an act of resistance um for a lot of the colonial work that we're that it is so age old and where can we see hope in some of the work that's coming from bipoc communities trying to challenge the status quo through the use of data
2: well i, I think some of the things you've seen and just you know there's an example that comes to mind as you're giving the color of change example is the is the is the challenge uh, of like how do you collect data on, on, on police shootings, right? And so we've seen, I believe it was the Washington Post, I think it was under, uh, I think West Lowry, and uh, I'm, I'm going to get this a little wrong, but the Washington Post to try to create, newspapers trying to create their own databases to understand the number of, of folks uh, who've been shot by police because it's not nationally, the records are not nationally kept, right? And so that's an example of data journalism that's serving toward uh, to bring more justice into, you know, uh, into like criminal, into criminal justice. Uh, My concern uh, also, you know, but my concern with data journalism, like the, uh, my concern with metrics that the companies use is like the LA Times that we talked about this a few minutes ago, uh, before we got on, like the idea, like the LA Times apologized, which is is a great beginning to apologize as a part of reconciliation for, you know, uh, not for making sure for not covering black and brown communities because they were covering white readers. That's true of like, that's like that's a norm of so many uh, white dominant uh, uh, newspapers. So they use metrics how to exclude <laughs> people of color. You know what zip codes not to 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 serve, um, and so um, you could even say Facebook is using metrics to serve a certain particular group more because uh, to, to, racism is profitable. That that if you inflame folks, so they can continue to come back to your platform, right? and using racism in, and to uh, recommend people to more racist content, um, that's, that's a form of data. That's, that's you know, I, I call it, I mean, that's a form of using data in order to uh, profit off of racism. So I'll just stop there, but I think that's an example like a, of what the Washington Post was. I think was, I'm continuing to say the Washington Post, I don't know if there's continuing, but that was an example that came up years ago that they were beginning to collect this data on, on, on race. And you see, you've even seen during COVID-19 a, a lot of newspapers uh, newspapers like the New York Times and in, in talking about disparities uh, in, 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 in race and, all, and when it comes to COVID that, that they, were, they were creating databases for, but um, I'll stop there.
0: Thank you. And, you know, Angel, you know, in Metrics at Work, you actually do a phenomenal job of also highlighting the fetishization of data. Um, and this, I think, was where this, this contradiction starts to emerge, which is how can data be used as a tool to, to challenge colonial um, histories, but also how do we grapple with the ways in which it upholds them? And, I, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with this, both because, I'd, you know, I'd love your um, accounting, and you referenced Ted Porter earlier, but this moment of, like, what is the work that data is doing Um, for the imagination of of work and to that end um, you know Koa in the Q&A asks like are there metrics that are complementary or alternatives to digital media metrics can we imagine a way within the rubric of of metricization that is actually
1: more just man this is such a good question and it's such an impossible question to answer right so okay so I keep like kind of moving back and forth between the like let's just like throw metrics away and just like kind of have a blanket thing that says like, you know what, all metrics are bad. Let's just like get rid of this. Um, And the more kind of reformist approach, which is like, well, some metrics are, better than others. And some metrics can be used in a good way compared to like bad ways, right? So good and bad being obviously uh, subjective constructs, but shall we say more accountable ways um, and in ways to kind of promote um, kind of social uh, justice and social reform, right? And so, you know, I really move back and both about this. Okay, so let me kind of um, just provide a quick overview of like the different metrics that are out there. Um, so you have page views. Uh, basically everybody says page views are just so bad They encourage the worst kind of clickbait. Then you have unique visitors. Slightly better because at least they don't make you click through like 20 different pages that count as 20 different clicks. At least that's only one person, et cetera. Then you have um, more qualitative metrics. So that would be time engaged, for example. Uh, And several companies, several newsrooms have been switching to time engaged. And there's the idea that, you know, it doesn't matter if a reader clicks on an article and bounces off. After two seconds, what you really want is them to engage with the content of the article and to stay on the website for a long time. Now, the problem with that is like, how does that tie back to the economic infrastructure that supports news production? And for me, at the end of the day, that's a real question, right? Can you sell advertising space? based on time engaged and like basically some newsrooms and companies are like oh yes you can because the longer people stay on the website the more likely they are to um, remember the brand and to later like kind of uh, buy stuff from that brand and you're like well if we're having these questions is it even worth it to switch to time engaged right I mean if like the whole thing is about selling brain space uh, for brands like, you know, is that a productive discussion um, and like two other aspects. So uh, the last metric is impact metrics. Um, so web, newsrooms like ProPublica, for example, um, have kind of decidedly switched away from page views unique visitors, time engaged, et cetera, to measure impact by like changes in legislation um, and other kind of more, shall we say, uh, institutional metrics of how it's affecting social and political change. So. As far as I'm concerned, um, all of this is complicated, and it's complicated by the fact that news production right now, most news production relies on a mix of advertising and subscriptions, right? And advertising and subscriptions basically depend on two main things, well, three, uh, absolute number of eyeballs, absolute number of people, uh, sociodemographic characteristics of the people, and we go back to Joe's comment, which is that Black people are less valuable to advertisers than white people. Rich people are more valuable than poor people. People in rich zip codes are more valuable than people in low-income zip codes. And all of that is, whether you want it or not, the structure of media production right now. And, you know, an editor that would tell me that they don't look at that, I don't believe them because that's how they make money. So it cannot be completely ignored. Now, uh, moving to the positive side, Um, I do think, and like, you know, today that's something that I've seen more at the individual level. I do think that some editors uh, in particular are trying really hard to use metrics in uh, ways that's like productive to kind of engage communities of readers. Uh, You know, I could name names. I have lots of ideas, but I'm not going to do that. I will just say that like you can use metrics as a form of feedback as a form of like, oh, look, people are interested in these topics that we are not covering. How do we cover this more? What does this mean? How do we build meaningful relationships? with these publics, right? How do we advance our goals? How do we build expertise? How do we change the way we frame our question? How do we learn from them? And especially when they're underrepresented, underserved minorities, right? Um, And and some editors are doing that, but to like the level that I've seen, um, it's mostly a kind of one-on, one-off, where is it possible? When is it possible? One person somehow really has a knack for like dealing with that. Um, and that for me kind of goes back to like another, anyway, let's like, stop here. Yeah.
2: Can I just say for 10, 10 seconds? I, I, that's why like um, my organization is working on free press. Uh, what does the future of journalism look like? Because the number of journalists that have been laid off or, or, or you know, furloughed, um, the number of journalists that just has rapidly declined, especially in newspapers. is a significant loss, right? And so how can we ensure like how can we have government you know, is a lot more there's a lot more support in DC for uh bailing out uh, the newspaper industries for example but how do we make sure journalists get the money right to actually produce journalism and how do we reduce the pressure <laughs> that you're describing here of like uh, that, I mean, there's good metrics, you know. So you can use metrics in a way that's supporting your journalism, that in support of in, in building community, like relationship with the community, in order to support journalism. Uh, we, as opposed to giving money to institutions, we ra- would rather see the journalists get the money to actually produce journalism than institutions that have failed to get to get funding. But uh, the future journalism, it, it's more supportive in, in D.C. to do something about it. And so, what does that look like, and how can we not replicate models that are not working?
0: No, and I can't thank you enough, both of you, Joseph and angel like this is such a fruitful conversation, and it kills me to actually have to cut it out before the we address even a fraction of the questions that have come in, which means there's plenty of room to follow up. Um, both of these uh, wonderful people are um, on social media, so you can reach out to them. They're happy to to engage. Um And I think you know, in closing, I think what you're hearing here, is that the contestation over journalism is the contestation over democracy. They are intertwined. There are these questions of who counts, whose voices matter, who is being represented, and how do we ensure that that this is the ideal that we all dream of? And as you leave here today, I have two requests because of course I have to end with a nice sales pitch. Number one, know your history. Make sure you pick up um, News for All the People by uh, Juan Gonzalez and Joseph Torres because it's really important to understand where we come from with this industry. Number two, pick up metrics at work from Angel Christian because understanding what's at stake in um, the newsrooms right now, to understand the contestations right now, is a really important event, uh, part of moving forward with this. Because if we want to build the ideal of journalism, we have to account for its past and we have to account for all of its um, contributions and connections up into capitalism and into white supremacy. And that leads us to sort of the final point, which is that having just been released today, your other, your other homework assignment is to make certain to pick up um, the report, um, of Media 2070, which is trying to imagine what a more fair and just uh, media ecosystem might look like and how we might get there. And with that, I wanna thank all of you for coming out today um, to try to figure out um, how to think through the relationship between metrics, race, and news journalism. Um, I wanna thank you to everyone at Data & Society for making all of this possible. So thank you.